Hi, welcome to the Macabre Emporium. Let me get my emotional support cat. Okay. <laughs> to be quiet and keep the kids quiet, since he was getting anxiety and he didn't want to kill children. Gertrude's daughter even got to join in on what they considered fun. Tell us about the giant turtle. Alan never showed up, nor was he ever heard from again beyond that point. Welcome back to Macabre Emporium. This is episode 27. And this is your first time joining us because you'd like to start in the middle. That's okay. And welcome. Welcome. And I'll add it since you didn't. Whack-a-doodle. Yeah. I was going to change it up this week. <laughs> so anyhow, welcome back, I guess you can say to everybody, plus us, after our break last week. Yeah. Sarah decided to get the six. Sure did. Keep saying she's allergic to uh, Fort Wayne because it seems like every time we stay the <laughs> night there she gets sick. First time she got COVID, now she's yep. just getting over sinus plus an ear infection. Double ear infection. Double ear infection. It's been super fun. Kind of like double secret probation. Uh, okay. I have no idea what that means. Oh, we gotta change that. It's from a movie called Animal House. Oh. I'm good on Animal House. Yeah, okay. I might have to find a new co-host now. Okay, bye. <laughs> so anyhow so this week i'm starting part one of two of the bath township disaster as they called it but it was unfortunately really a massacre definitely so this week i'm basically going over andrew kehoe himself and then next week i felt that the day of needed its own episode absolutely yeah and plus i still haven't finished the book yet yeah this book is actually called Bath Massacre, America's First School Bomber. School Bombing. Um, it's been quite helpful. I've actually learned quite a bit from this book that things that I didn't know happened to make more sense after I've heard the story because hearing other people cover this story, I was just like, well, how did that happen? Well, how did this happen? Well, it was cleared up in this book. Yeah. So I don't know if you've heard the story or not. I know some people have. But this is kind of like the ripple effect with this story for me on how we got to where we are now. Yeah. How that is, is because I mentioned the show quite a bit before was dark windows podcast. They had covered this once before. And then I got to know Kevin Carlton, one of the main hosts of that show quite a bit through the months after I became a fan, joined their group and to the point to where we started our own. Mm -hmm. And now we've made more friends with that too. Right. So, yeah, I guess you could say this case is kind of special to me, and that's why I've always wanted to do it. And I also kind of feel like I'm going to be one of those people that this is my specialty thing because there's other books about it I want to read. Why is this going to be your specialty thing? Just because there's a couple more books out there about this that I want to read out of my own interest. Because even if I would have held off on this and read all those, this probably would have been more than, like, two parts. Maybe. I don't know, maybe do a follow-up around this time next year. I don't know. You could. But anyhow, with that said, let's just get started then. Okay. Oh, and that goes without saying, I'm not doing anything this week. I'm just listening. Yeah, we both felt that this is going to be one of those cases that needed to be a standalone on its own. Yeah. So, it will be true crime, but it will not be for me. Right. Or Salem.
13 miles northeast of Lansing, Michigan, you will find Bath Township, Michigan. Bath would officially be founded in 1843 and had a population of 515 people by 1860. And the majority of this population was farmers. The name Bath would be selected by pioneer Celias Rose from New York State and named the area Bath in tribute of his hometown. Whereas Bath, New York is named after the Roman Baths in Central England, as technology progressed through the 20th century with the Michigan Central Railroad coming through and trucks and cars traveling the dusty roads through town, Bath, Michigan wouldn't receive electricity until the mid-1910s and resisted turbulent times of prohibition even with rumors swirling about that the notorious Al Scarface Capone visiting his college on Round Lake, five miles outside of Bath. Residents wouldn't openly talk about his presence in the area, even though one family that lived eight miles down the road would only think of him as a pretty nice neighbor regardless. This small Michigan village would be considered an idyllic small town USA for the times. Where people knew their neighbors and left their doors unlocked, today Bath, Michigan has a healthy population of 3,100 citizens and is considered a bedroom community for Lansing. Decades before the Bath Consolidated School was constructed, throughout Clinton County, one-room schoolhouses dotted the countryside, making it easier for farm children to get an education beyond home, home economics for girls and how to run the farms for the boys. The first schoolhouse in Bath Township was constructed in the 1840s, a large log cabin with a large fireplace for harsh Michigan winters. These schoolhouses also served a dual purpose of being a place of worship with the arrival of a traveling minister to arrive spread the gospel. The boys of the school would light the fireplace as a welcoming gesture to the minister. This fire would be warm and comforting, but just too plain big for the fireplace and end up burning down the schoolhouse. Now the children might have thought this was a dream come true when this happened, as this would mean no more school. Education would still resume after a new schoolhouse was erected. 32 years later, after the first schoolhouse of Bath was erected, 70 miles southwest in Tecumseh, Michigan, Andrew Kehoe was born. The first son after the first four daughters of Philip and Mary Kehoe would have two more daughters after Andrew. Philip Kehoe ran a very successful farm raising cattle and growing various crops. Attending the Culberston School, Andrew would develop a fascination with electricity like most boys would with sports. By the age of 10, Andrew would see his mother's health decline. With having a hard time keeping up with Andrew and his six sisters, Mary was often ill with what was described by most sources, but never clear what a disease of the nervous system is what they said she was ill with, but never mm -hmm. specified what it was. Okay. Probably because the conditions weren't known at this time Yeah. to actually make an actual diagnosis of what it was. By his 18th birthday, his mother Mary would be confined to a bed and suffer complete paralysis. Mary was to come to her illness on November 5th, 1890. Even with his father in his 60s and suffering from arthritis, when Mary widowed Frances Wilder, that was only three years younger than Andrew and the, with several children of her own. Now I'm sure you and our listeners are in disgust at this point, but this was common in these times and wouldn't really decline until the 1930s about taking child brides during the Great Depression. Yeah, fuck all that. Now, Delaware is the only state as of 2018 that has banned mar child marriage altogether. I'm sorry, the only state? The only state that has full-out banned child marriage. Wow. Wow, okay. Andrew and Francis would loathe each other. There isn't a lot of information on why these two never liked each other. Like, a lot of questions I know people would have. There's no information on it, unfortunately. 
which really sucks, but it is what it is. Yeah. It could be a combination of things. It could be that his father, Philip, remarried after his mother died, the proximity and age, or that his father built a new larger brick farmhouse after his mother passed away. Could be some of my guesses on why. With this mutual loathing of each other, Andrew would leave the family farm and not much is really known about what he did in these times other than he would attend Michigan State College, later to be known as Michigan State University studying electrical engineering. At Michigan State College, he would show the same aptitude for electricity as he did as a child and might be considered a modern-day Prometheus with this newfound fire known as electricity. Mm-hmm. He would continue his education on, on in St. Louis, Missouri. Once again, not much is known what happened here and what he did in Missouri other than he worked throughout the state of Missouri and throughout the Midwest. And he would also continue working as a lineman in the electrical field in Iowa before returning to Michigan in 1905 at the age of 33. Even with his time away from the farm, his relationship with his family was strained. And resented his, his father's new family, it would seem he would have some kind of competition to inherit his fa- father's farm. Being his stepmother and his three-year-old sister and his three-year-old stepsister Irene, with his father Philip in his late 70s and relying on a cane to move around due to having crippling arthritis, he would be mostly dependent on Francis for almost everything that he needed done. With the relationship between Andrew and his father strained already, a tragedy may change all that and make Andrew number one to inherit the farm. The events of September 17, 1911 differ in how the incident began. One of these stories is that Francis and her daughter were out picking hickory nuts in the forest behind the Kehoe home and then returning home to make lunch. The other version of what happened this day is that Francis was in town and hurried home instead. Regardless of the events leading up to what happened on this day, Francis did enter the small kitchen of the farmhouse, which contained a large stove. Being state-of-the-art for its time, it would contain a fuel tank on top, and it would also have a very large design flaw. Anytime the stove would have to be used by Francis, she would have to light the pilot with a match. As soon as she would light the stove on September 17th, like she had many times before, she would be engulfed in flames. Screaming in agony, Philip and Andrew would run to see what the problem was. Both of these men would find Francis ablaze, flailing, in a desperate attempt to douse the flames. Philip helpless to come to his wife's aid, Andrew would grab a pitcher of water, flinging the water on Francis. As we all know, you don't throw water on a grease fire as it would just cause the fire to spread. Yeah. Somehow, this fire was extinguished after all, and Andrew and now nine-year-old stepsister Irene would carry Francis to a nearby bedroom. He would then run to the neighbors as they didn't have a working telephone themselves. Hetty Murphy, their neighbor, would recall from that day while she was preparing her own family's lunch. There would be a knock at the door. It was more of a nonchalant rapping instead of a bang on the door like someone in panic. Yeah. Upon opening the door, she would find Andrew standing on the porch without a care in the world, like he was standing there waiting to, like, ask if their son was home to play or something. Basically. Jesus. Andrew would ask Kenny Murphy to call a doctor. She would ask if someone was sick. Andrew would kindly reply, no, Franny got burned. And he would describe the way that he said this as if it was a minor burn, as if dropping a boiling pot of water on your foot. Or stepping on a George Foreman grill in the morning. <laughs> Correct. As much as I read in the story, and I know what's coming up, I had to throw something in there for me myself. So he made it sound like it was just a very minor burden, Mm -hmm. not that she was completely engulfed in flame. Well, like I said, they resented each other. They loathed each other. 
We would also ask Hetty to call for a priest. Even with the doctor arriving on the Kehoe farm, there wasn't much anyone could do except watch the priest deliver the right, last rites to Francis. Hmm. But it's always been up to debate if Andrew had intentionally tampered with the stove as a way to kill his stepmother to make it look like an accident. Along with that, he would know that throwing water on a gas fire would make it worse. Which, they said the stove was state-of-the-art. I looked in the advertisements to see if I could find one or how this one, this type, type of stove got lit. Mm-hmm. And these type of stoves, it was either a wood fire, a gas fire fueled fire or an oil fueled fire so there's no really telling because some sources said it was an oil fired stove some said it was a gas fired stove so it is what it is a lot of other people would speculate that he threw this water on it on her to make it worse most would say that due to his higher education that he should have known better than to do this but i am also not one to say this is the case because nobody really knows how you would, could possibly react to in a situation like this. You can say, oh, I know how to do this, I know mm-hmm. how to do that. But until you're in that spot, you're not going to know what you're actually going to do. Yeah. How old was he for this part? Um, rumor, He was 39 when this happened. Okay. But due to rumors after the, you know, the bombing. Yeah. They said this happened when he was 14. So, following death records and through Find a Grave, I figured it out. He was actually 39 when this happened. Okay. Even though I'm sure most of us learned that you extinguish grease or oil fires with salt, a lid, or baking soda for small oil fires, but we will never know due to Andrew taking the truth with him to the grave about this. After Francis's death, Philip's health would dramatically decline. Confined to a wheelchair, Andrew's attention would be elsewhere, and that would be courting a woman by the name of Ellen Price, but known to most as Nellie. Nellie is the daughter of a Civil War veteran and successful businessman, Patrick Price. Price would make his fortune from the factory making parts for a lesser-known car manufacturer at the time named Ford Motor Company. Oh yeah, that, that tiny little company. Yeah. Seven months later, on May 14th, 1912, Andrew and Nellie wed and moved to Tecumseh, to work his family farm due to him being confined to a wheelchair before he died on January 18th, 1915. Andrew and Nellie tend to keep to themselves and briefly attend a nearby Catholic church, but this would come to an end due to the church being torn down to build a new one. The church congregants would be assessed and asked to pay a fee for the new sanctuary. Kehoe's amount would be $400, which would equal out to $12,000 today in 2023, in case somebody listens to this way on later on in the future. Yeah. And in an add to his late father's feelings about taxation, he would ignore this bill. His father was very vocal about farmers taking charge of mm-hmm. their crops and not letting people bully them basically into setting the price. The farmer should be in charge of it and yeah. basically screw the taxes. We grew this. We should be in control of it. Right. After some time, one of the priests of this church would come to collect the Kehoe's amount. Even though the clergyman was never ordered to leave when he came to visit the Kehoe's to collect their amount, but the Kehoe's would never return to the church and Andrew would forbid Nellie to return as a member of that church. Just because he was like... He just didn't want to pay that amount. Wow. Okay. Nellie and Andrew would finally move to Bath, Michigan in 1919 after purchasing the 185-acre farm from the estate of her uncle, Lawrence Price. The total asking price for the Price farm 
would be $12,000 or $203,000 today. And that's just for, was it a house on the? No, the, like the whole the entire whole property. The whole property okay. as a farm. Andrew and Nellie would sell the Kehoe farm for $6,000 and take out a mortgage for the remaining amount. Even though his neighbors in Bath would find him helpful at times, but if you disagreed with him, he would become impatient and somewhat petty. One of these examples would be being persistent with one of his neighbors in Tecumseh to purchase 15 cords of wood at half price just so his rival in Tecumseh wouldn't be able to use it. So, because he sold the... He sold the family farm to a man he never really got along with in Tecumseh. So to be petty and he didn't want him to use it, he was like, buy all this wood for like half the price. Just because I don't want this man to have it. Jesus. And mostly that was because at the time this man came approached him about buying it and it angered Andrew because it, he lost out on money having to have a realtor involved selling it. So that was his way of getting back is by having him his neighbor buy all this wood. Wow. The Kehoes would seem like nice neighbors at first when moving to Bath. Their neighbors and other people of Bath would recount that Andrew was very polite and dependable and would lend a hand if someone needed it. Whereas most farmers in the area would still plow their fields with oxen and plow, his neighbors would be drawn to watch Andrew work his farm with his new tractor. And he would even offer his closest neighbor, oh, Job Slight, to give it a try after finally introducing himself and showing interest in the newer farming techniques. Andrew would also become the go-to man in the area if they needed something removed with explosives. He became extremely proficient at the farm in Tecumseh, and in Bath, explosions were often heard on the farm, using dynamite or pyrotol, which was common use on farms to remove tree stumps, rocks, since these could damage valuable farm equipment when plowing or maintaining their crops, mm -hmm. or they just need the shit gone. Right. With farming being hard and dirty work, Andrew Kehoe would keep himself and his property in pristine condition. No tool would be out of place when not in use. If Andrew got himself dirty when working, he would immediately go in and change his soiled clothes, so if he got anything like he was spotted running this tractor in a full suit. At all times, like farmers at the time were like either in coveralls, well, yeah, or overalls. You know, the first thing that comes in your mind when you think of a farmer that's basically kind of how they dress. Because I did look for pictures to give you an example, but he was in a full ass suit. Mm -hmm. So, like the one picture that's known of him, of him sitting at a desk with a cigar in hand next to his wife, uh -huh. that's like the only picture that I've ever found of him. That's how he dressed all the time. Including while he was doing farming work. Yep. Wow. Even though the Kehoes, especially Andrew, was well respected in the community as a helpful and polite man, there were times his much darker side would come through. One of those examples of this is when the neighbor's pet terrier went missing in March of 1920. Oh, no. There are many versions of what happened to the, to the dog, anywhere from it accidentally being shot by Andrew or him flat out claiming he did it when the damn nuisance was bearing a bone on his property. It's he was quoted not by him by one of the survivors mm -hmm. from one of the sources I used for this I mean it would make sense if he kept his yard pristine right. dog come in and start you know screwing it up to, to bury the bone right Ugh. even though with both stories out there it is unclear which version is true the hearts would remain neighborly with the Kehoes and would lend a hand to each other when it was needed, but would no longer give them rides to them when they needed to go to Lansing due to the fact that they didn't own a car themselves at this time. Mm -hmm. 
David Hart would also witness Kehoe's darker side while running a manure spreader, being pulled by being pulled by his horses. Hart would recall seeing Andrew shouting onward repeatedly to his horses until they were in a froth, basically foaming at the mouth. Later that night, the horse would die from being overworked, and they also said that David Hart had witnessed Andrew beating the shit out of one of these horses, basically. Not sure with what. Why? Because it wasn't moving fast enough for him? Because he wasn't getting his way, and this is how he would get when he wasn't getting his way. So, like, depending on time of year, he's doing this, and we're using horse-drawn you know horse-drawn equipment it could be that the spreader was was overloaded and the horses could were pulling it fine on solid ground but when you're in a freshly tilled field or whatever that ground's fucking soft as shit yeah you know it's you're basically almost walking through dry mud i guess you could say yeah because i don't know if you ever walked through a actual farm field at all before which you know i have because of my family background on my dad's side and both my parents side i have yeah, basically, it's like dried mud for the most part. Yeah. Is the best way I can put it. Could you compare it to, like, walking in your yard where, like, a mole has been digging underneath? It feels and it, like, like that. Is very just squishy. That's what it feels like, yeah. Okay. The next day, David Hart would come by to borrow a wagon seat while a truck would come by to pick up the dead horse. He would say, I see you had bad luck with your horse. Andrew's response was, yeah, damn him. He ought to have been killed years ago. He didn't pull, and we had a mix-up, and when I got through with him, he was dead. Wow. So just no fucks given. Mm -hmm. By the 1920s, more centralized and organized education was needed in the county. There were a total of 10 schoolhouses serving Bath in the surrounding area, some of them being only one-room schoolhouses, and the 10th grade being the highest level. The idea of consolidating all the schools into one building and extending the grades to the 12th grade. Even though most residents of Bath found this to be a great idea and wanted to make the new school building a symbolic landmark representing a bright future of Bath. Bath resident Monty Ellsworth would later on write in his chronicles about the bombing. A consolidated school is expensive in a small community, but there are a great many other things to look at. The children don't have to wade through the snow and mud. They are picked up at the door. A great many people appreciate not having their children playing by the road with rough children and standing a chance of being attacked by some lawless ruffian. Parents can feel that their children are safe from the time that they leave the door to the time they are brought back. I love the fact that he used the word ruffian in this. Why? I don't know, just because it's an old-timey word. It is. You still hear it every once in a while, though. Right? It just seems like you don't have to worry about them ruffians. It's kidnapping your children, but anyway. Yeah. On November 12th, 1921, a vote would be held on a bond proposal to fund the new school. Out of 67 votes, only 20 opposed. With a new school, a bond of $43,000, $8,000 was already raised by the school board. It would pay for the athletic fields and the power plants. The remaining $35,000 would come from property taxes. The rate would be $12.26 per $1,000. For property evaluation. Kehoe's farm would be evaluated at $10,000 and would come out to be $167,603.87. Okay. In today's money? Yes. That's how much he was going to be taxed to pay for this school. Okay. Most people don't pay that much in property tax. He was paying over $100,000 in property taxes oh, in his share for the school. But that's for a school. 
is it? No, this is how much he has to pay into the bond for the school. Okay, okay. Out of his property taxes. Okay. His property taxes are over over $167,000. The fall of the next year, the new Bath Consolidated School would be opened and welcome 236 students in its first year of being open. Under the supervision of the new superintendent, Emery Hayek, with this new modern school open, the next goal would be to have the school accredited by University of Michigan. Okay. With the goal with the goal of having the school accredited, it would mean more money would be needed to hire teachers and classroom materials that would meet the criteria. With being accredited also means grant money for the school, which they achieved in 1925, only three years after the school opened. Okay. Before Bath reached this level of education, Andrew would be elected as treasurer for the school board after leading a coalition for new leadership and getting rid of the good old boy network that seemed to permeate the school board. So, with that said, as small as Bath is, that's kind Mm -hmm. of a hard thing not to have. What's that, a school? No, the good old boy network. The fuck is a good old boy network? A good old boy network is all like, like, basically they're all doing favors for each other being part of this board. So not really good old boys then. Well, like you're scratch, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Yes, it's still technically considered the good old boy network. Oh, okay. I had never heard that term before. Yeah. Other than having a reputation of being a helpful and polite neighbor, he was also known as being frugal. During his time as school treasurer, any time the votes would come up for new equipment, books, playground equipment, etc., Andrew would always vote no. He would also call for board meetings to be adjourned if he wasn't going to get his way. Uh. And he would also accuse Hayek, school superintendent, for financial mismanagement. So he was just a big Karen. Yeah, for the most part, as we would call him now. Jesus. Hayek and Keogh would always go head-to-head when it dealt with spending anything for the school. Hayek would just want what is best for the students. And Keogh would want what was best for his wallet. Of course. Uh, People that were interviewed for the book that I use most of my information for, they would say it was like as sure they use it as an intentional pun that like the room was electric when these two would go head to head about it. Like Andrew's biggest thing was with Hayek was that he shouldn't be able to get two weeks vacation. We need to cut that. He need to cut his salary down because it's too much money being spent on that. Jeez. Um, this was all in the sake of getting his property taxes lowered basically eventually. With his ability to keep perfect books for the school, he would temporarily be appointed town clerk in 1925 after the current clerk passed away. And but to continue on with this position, he would have to be nominated, which he was not. And his public rejection, his and this public rejection angered him. Even with his perfect bookkeeping skills, his confrontational behavior is what really kept him from being nominated. And this is believed to be set him down the path of revenge. Even though with no longer able to keep an eye on the town finances as a treasurer, the town of Bath would call for Andrew's help in the winter of 1925-26. to 26. Okay. Earlier that year, bees had found their way inside the school and established a hive. And when Michigan winters came, these bees would go into hibernation in the wild. But with the furnace running to warm the school, it would wake these bees from their hibernation. Bees would swarm the halls and classrooms, stinging staff and children. And then, after two unsuccessful attempts, the school board wanted approached Andrew Kehoe to do something, do anything to get these bees out of the school because 
he was kind of like said the go-to man because of his mechanical ability. Yeah. His eager to be, you know be helpful throughout the neighbor you know the community andrew kehoe would actually be successful after removing these bees it's unclear on how he removed these bees with the success the school board would ask him if he would also look over the school's electrical system after all who else in town would be best for the job since he is a michigan state university graduate in electrical engineering hey, hey, hey. i don't know that they they knew what they signed up for yeah. Along with this, you know, after him looking this over the school electrical system, they would also ask him to start looking over all the general maintenance of the school as well. Which basically would give him free access day and night to the building at this point. So he could learn the ins and outs mm-hmm. and all the nooks and crannies. Yep. Jesus. With this newfound general maintenance man for the school Andrew became a regular sight around the school doing maintenance sometimes school children would greet him good morning as they entered the school as where he would tell them good morning as well and be good and not to cause mischief uh huh foreshadowing maybe uh huh well at this time in this part of the timeline probably not but some things that he did say later on then will be said in part two They'll probably really piss you off. Like, are you fucking serious? Yeah. I know there was a line that really... Yeah, that I've already told you about. Yeah. Made you sick to your stomach. Yeah. Even though the Kehoes came from a wealthy background from Nellie's side of the family, they didn't own a vehicle themselves, as I had mentioned earlier. And needing to pick up supplies for the school, Andrew would enlist the help of Job Slight once again to drive him into Lansing to pick up various parts like nuts, bolts, pipe paint whatever he needed for the school to fix the school up later on that fall he would call on job to drive him to jackson michigan to pick up pyrotol to remove tree stumps from the west side of his farm slight would find this a bit odd to drive as far as jackson for some pyrotol as it's 100 miles round trip from bath michigan slight would do the neighborly thing and still drive him to jackson after all since kehoe did a lot of volunteer work with local farm bureaus that would sell surplus pyrotol to anyone that needed explosives now i'm sure you're probably like how the fuck are you able to buy this well in the 1920s you could literally go to the country store and buy dynamite jesus just go in yeah i need 13 sticks of dynamite you know or like like ching here you go yeah basically So I'm sure you're probably curious on what exactly pyrotol is. Yeah. So Okay. So pyrotol is an explosive that was readily available in surplus quantities after World War One. Unlike its more famous counterpart, dynamite, it was much cheaper to remove stumps and rocks from fields, but could pack just as a powerful charge as dynamite would. Okay. A six-ounce six charge of pyrotol can be just as effective as an eight-ounce charge of dynamite. As where dynamite actually is basically made from nitroglycerin, diamaceous earth, and some other various chemical compounds. Pyrotol Mm -hmm. is a smokeless explosive, and it would be made from a smaller amount of nitroglycerin, but would be used with, made with gunpowder as well, too. So that's why it was still just as effective as dynamite was and much cheaper. Okay. Andrew Kehoe and Job Slate would pick up 500 pounds of pyrotol and blasting caps in Jackson, Michigan. 500 pounds? Mm-hmm. Wow. On their way back to Bath, Andrew would mention to Slate, if you know anyone that needs any, I will come off some for of it slightly more than what I paid for it. 
days later, the brother of a friend of Slate's would contact Andrew about buying some of his explosives from him, but he would tell them it was all gone. I can I find it a little hard to believe to go through 500 pounds of dynamite that fast, like using it correctly, because like I said, throughout the years, blasting was a common thing to be heard on the Kehoe farm. Yeah. And it could be from removing stumps, removing rocks, whatever else, who knows. Or he said it and he still had some. And yep. he was just That's lying. That's going to be talked about next week. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In February of 1926, Andrew would finally purchase a flatbed Ford pickup truck. But with his reputation for penny pinching and not getting rich from farming, this would seem like a very expensive purchase for him to make all of a sudden. In the summer of the same year, Andrew Kehoe would suffer another blow. In his world as Nellie's health would start to decline with nasty coughs, severe headaches, and rapid weight loss. Doctors diagnosed her with tuberculosis and for some reason changed her diagnosis to asthma, but it more or less sounds like it was a TB. Yeah. Nellie would frequently be in and out of the hospital in Lansing due to her, due to her illness and Andrew would make daily trips to visit her. They would go on as far as hiring a young woman that was never named to help Nellie around the house, which was pretty much better in from her illness. Mm -hmm. Even with Andrew's perfect bookkeeping skills for the school and his time as town clerk tracking down where every penny went, that maybe if he applied these same disciplines to his own finances, we might not even be sitting here talking about this altogether. Right. Andrew would make regular payments for the farm up until March of 1921, and then they would just stop. No ever explanation of why they just stopped. They just came to an end. Okay. Now, their mortgage was actually through the trust or inheritance of her uncle, not an actual bank. Mm -hmm. So where, you know, we would be dealing with a bank to do this, it would be through his, through the, uh, the inheritance for her uncle Price. In August of 1925, the Price estate would release... In August of 1925, the Price Estate would release $1,200 to Nellie and Andrew. Would come and pick up their check from the estate lawyer, James Dunback. But not to, but they did not mention anything about their late payments. A month later, the probate judge overseeing the estate would receive a letter from Nellie asking what the appraised value of the Kehoe property was, but still no payments. Months later, in March of 1926, Dunback would release another $500 to Nellie as the state contract was written and was he would see this as a good gesture instead of writing them a check for them to come pick up, he would actually apply this $500 to their late payments on the farm mortgage. Okay. Dunback would send a letter telling the Kehoes what he was going to do with the inheritance check. Nellie would send a thank you back and would also like to arrange a meeting and discuss their debts as Andrew was deeply involved with the school board at this time. Instead of being thankful for the choice that James Dunback had made for them, Andrew Kehoe would contact the lawyer by the name of Kelly Cyril for a probate hearing against the Price estate. This hearing was about that Dunback had inappropriately diverted Nellie's inheritance without her consent. During this hearing, Dunback would find it peculiar that the mortgage was in Nellie and Andrew's name, but the land deed was only in Andrew's. Legally, Nellie had the final say in how her inheritance would be used, and Judge MacArthur's findings would be simple that, yes, the Price estate had made an inappropriate decision with the $500, but them applying it to the mortgage was in everyone's best interest. 
Cyril advised that the key holds to accept this decision by the judge, and Nellie was all in favor for that, but Andrew disagreed and insisted that the money to go to Nellie, and she reluctantly would agree with Andrew and then would be given a check for $500. Two months later in May, no payments or a word from the Kehoes about payments to the Price estate, and they had no other option to but foreclose on their mortgage. Dunback would file a foreclosure with the Sheriff Bart Fox. Dunback would travel to the Sheriff's office on a Saturday to start the process, but he was out. So instead of making the trip twice, he would mail the notice to Fox a few days later. That same day, Dunback would run into Nellie's sister Elizabeth Price, where he would inform her of the foreclosure. He would assure her that this was more to negotiate payment options instead of removing them from the farm altogether. But Elizabeth would insist not to file the suit as the added stress would do more harm than good with Nellie's fragile state from her current illness. Mm-hmm. Dumbback would go on with Elizabeth's wishes and try to get a hold of Fox to try and stop him from serving these papers. Unable to do so, Dunback would send a telegram to Fox reading, I've tried since 5 o'clock to reach your office by telephone. Don't serve Kehoe's summons until after instructions from me, Dunback. Unfortunately, this telegram wouldn't arrive in time as the deputy had already left to deliver the foreclosure suit. Kehoe took the papers from the deputy, reading them over, telling Fox's deputy, if it had not been for the $300 school tax, I might have been able to pay that mortgage. Already considered eccentric for the area as he would be seen dressed for a night on the town while tending to his fields, but now what seems like every element of his life is beating him down, the mortgage, his political career in the community, mm-hmm where he wouldn't be elected as town clerk or the justice of the peace for the for Bath, Michigan, and also his wife's declining health, along with the constant fights with Hayek on the school board, his behavior would become more erratic. And that's where we stopped this week. Ah! Uh, God. I but know. how much more erratic... Well, we'll find out, and I'm sure if you already heard the story, it's not a huge spoiler to you. No, it's not a huge spoiler to me, but right. I know that you're going to tell me more than I've heard right. previously, because you had you know, a really good resource to go off mm-hmm. of. I've been using one book mostly for this, other than a few pages that are on the internet about this, mm-hmm. the book that we picked up from uh, Dead Time Stories, which is coincidentally in Lansing, Michigan. Yep. Um, the name of it is Bath Massacre, America's First School Bombing by Arnie Bernstein. Mm-hmm. And there's quite a bit of information in it if anybody's interested in picking this up and reading it on their own time. Yep. And there's pictures. <laughs> and there are some pictures that you won't find on the internet as well. Yeah. Because it's one of the case like this time period. Yeah. You know, it's the same four or five pictures that everybody uses. And like I wanted to continue on with this, but there is a lot of information on this story, so I felt like it needed to be two parts on its own. Yeah. Otherwise, it would be like a two-hour episode. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about them, but I have a really hard time listening to podcasts that are right. like two hours, three hours right. long. And, that's, <laughs> and I think what we've been doing has been just fine. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think maybe... 90 minutes might be our max if it ever comes down to it. Maybe. Yeah, the next part of this is going to be the day, you know, the rest of the events leading up to it in the day of, and then I'm going to 
include some survivor stories that are involved with it to give people more of a better feel on how this event was this you know this event actually was which not knocking anybody else i've never really heard anybody else do it that way yeah i just this like seems to be like like i said it's a very important story case to me mm-hmm. and i want to make sure i do this right yeah and you want to you want to do the victims justice mm-hmm. too so it's one of those important stories i can't like there was or is a documentary coming out called the forgotten and this is kind of one of those things that was forgotten because of another historical event that happened within days after this yeah ha- that this shared the front page with which i had never known that happened until we had visited this site ourselves one day yep but we can talk about that next yeah, week that's all stuff to be talked about in next week's episode yes yep that's probably the one and only time that we reveal what the following week's episode is but i'm sure y'all would have figured that out since i said this is going to be two parts yeah so with that said i think it's time we close the emporium up for the day sarah what do you think i agree so until next time remember to creep it real Please check out our website at macabreemporiumpodcast.com. Join our Facebook group by searching Macabre Emporium. Like and subscribe on YouTube at Macabre Emporium Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Macabre Emporium. And if you have any stories of the paranormal, your local true crime, or weird history that you would want us to look into and possibly do an episode on, email us at macabreemporiumpod at gmail.com. Remember to follow, rate, like, review, and share whenever and wherever you can and help us grow our little baby podcast.